always feel very awkward when people clap. You don't know what I've got to say yet. Might not be clapping by the end of it, but really good to see you at church this morning. My name's Sammy, one of the pastors here. Uh, really good to have you. If you are visiting with us, I know a few visitors we have. Really, really good to see you. Uh, it's really good to be together. Uh, we've just started a new series. Uh, so if you've, this is your first week, then you've missed the start last week, but you'll see from the video, we've started a huge new series in Genesis uh, called The Beginning. And uh, it's very exciting. Lots of things uh, that we're going to be looking at. And today, I don't know if you remember, last week we looked at, can you remember? I'm glad you were listening. Creation, yes, the six days of creation. And today we're going to be looking uh, at the seventh day, which is going to be very exciting. You'll see what the theme is for a moment. Can we go back a little moment? Just want to share a couple of things with you. Um, there's a, a growing number of scientists um, that have embraced uh, a kind of a, a science called chronobiology. It's quite famous now, um, but it's a study basically of repeated cycles in organisms. So kind of cycles that go uh, that kind of continued and cycle around in certain numbers of days. It's called chronobiology. And the father of chronobiology, I'm just going to show you a picture of him. This is uh, Franz Halberg, who unfortunately passed away uh, just last year. He is the father of basically this discovery known as chronobiology. Uh, and basically, it's, it's the kind of it's been proven that we as humans and actually as life organisms, other organisms in the world, have cycles. So maybe you've heard of the Carcadian rhythm. Put your hand up if you've heard of that. A few scientists here. That's basically when we have a 24-hour cycle in our bodies. But there's another cycle that we have in our bodies, which is actually a seven-day cycle, and it's been proven. I'll just give you some of his research uh, that he's uncovered. So some of his research has proved that many conditions in humans that seem to rise and fall in seven-day cycles. So here's some of them. Your heartbeat, your blood pressure, your body temperature, your hormone levels apparently, your acid content in your blood, your red blood cell count, your oral temperature, and your urine chemistry. I could go on, but I won't. But apparently, there is this cycle, seven-day cycle phenomenon. Um, I don't know if this is true, Laurie. You might be able to tell me. But doctors apparently have observed that response to malaria and pneumonia infections usually peak at seven days. Is that true? She says, yes. <laughs> it's quite interesting, isn't it? Now, some people argue and say, well, you know, maybe this is just something that's evolved or something that's kind of over time uh, that we as humans have kind of got used to. But the very interesting thing about the research is that they find not just this seven-day cycle in humans, but they started to find it in actually all the other organisms uh, they were researching, things such as algae, rats, mice, guinea pigs, honeybees, beach beetles, and face flies. I don't even know what a face fly is, but it probably lands on your face. Uh, a gentleman called Jeremy Campbell, who uh, is an author of an interesting book called Winston Churchill's Afternoon Nap. I'd recommend it. He said this, listen to this. Fifteen years ago, 
Few scientists would have expected that seven-day biological cycles would prove to be so widespread and so long established in the living world. They are, of course, very ancient origin, appearing in primitive one-celled organisms and are thought to be present even in bacteria, the simplest form of life now existing. It's really interesting. It seems that the whole of life is in this seven-day cycle. Uh, Historically, there's been two experiments, uh, one in France and one in Russia, after both the communistic, atheistic kind of revolutions came about. They tried to stop the seven-day week. They didn't want to build a society based on anything to do with the Bible. And so they tried to change it and have a different cycle. And what happened was it failed and they, they eventually went back to the seven-day week. And there's something, it's just a few thoughts, something seems to be in our world and in our bodies and in the organisms around us, this seven-day cycle. And I would argue possibly it's to do with going back to creation and what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. It's the way that in one sense God's wired us, he's rhythmed us, And it seems to be the groove that our soul settles into. And I believe that's to do with God. So we're going to look at Genesis 2 this morning. It's a very short passage, Genesis 2. And we'll look at verses 1 to 3. So it's going to come up behind me. Let's read this uh, together. When I say together, I mean I'll read it and you listen. So let's have a look. Genesis chapter 2 says this. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. Okay, that's talking about creation. How many days did it take God to make the world? Six days. Now, we talked about last week what that actually meant. I'm not going to go into that again, but if you want to go and look at those things, you can look at the MP3 online. Verse 2, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. Let's just pray for a moment. God, as we take just a a few moments this morning to look at this theme, this principle, this idea of rest, I pray would you speak to us from the Bible. God, we thank you that your word is alive. Thank you that it does speak to us. Thank you that it speaks into our very situations. And so, God, I ask just as I communicate some thoughts from Genesis this morning that we would open our hearts to your Spirit. We'd open our hearts to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So this uh, principle that we're going to be looking at uh, this morning, you'll see behind me, the seventh day. This is the best picture that I could find to do with rest. But this principle of uh, resting or taking one day off a week um, has come to be known, if you've been around church for a while, you'll have heard it before, Sabbath. Yeah, you've heard of that before. And it really comes from the Greek word sabbat, which is actually in this verse that we read before. So when you see the word rest, that's what the word Sabbath, that's where it comes from. And it means to rest Maybe a better way of understanding it is actually to cease from working. 
And I don't know about you, but I think this principle, probably not often talked about in church, but often I think more applicable and relevant to our lives probably than, than any time in history. You think of our lives, things seem to get busier and busier. We find ourselves under more pressure, fewer boundaries, less stability in our daily work, this kind of globalization and technology constantly going and moving. And I don't know about you, but it seems that often there are times where it just seems like things are going and going and going. But that's not the principle and certainly not the way that God has designed us to function. He's designed us to function in a different way. And we're going to look at that in a moment. Now, when it comes to this topic, the Sabbath, there kind of seems to be a lot of controversy, as you can imagine, around it. And some of the controversy kind of comes about through questions like, should we follow the Sabbath? It's a good question. Is the Sabbath a Saturday or a Sunday? Maybe you've never thought about that. Does it apply to me today as a follower of Jesus? It is one of the Ten Commandments. Surely do we not follow the Ten Commandments? So surely should we not follow keeping the Sabbath? And what does it mean when Jesus talks about being our rest? Have you ever heard of that? I mean, does that mean literally we never need to take a day off work? Lots of questions, and we're going to hopefully answer some of those this morning. So let's just start with a few thoughts about this idea and word, the Sabbath. It kind of travels right the way through the Bible. And just for a moment, I want to do a whistle-stop tour of kind of the theology of the Sabbath, just so that we can get some foundations as we think about these things. So let's look at all, look first of all at what the Jews' uh, attitude, if you like, was towards the Sabbath, okay? So let me give you a couple of things that might help. They uh, Jewish people still today celebrate the Sabbath. And for them, that is specifically, and as it was in the Bible, the Saturday. So you will find, if you go to Israel, that everything, literally everything, stops. I'll give you an example of this. You'll see behind me. This is, c- can you believe it, a Sabbath elevator. Now, this is how literal the Jews will take the Sabbath. They would regard anything, even pushing a button, as work. And therefore, they've designed these uh, elevators. You might not be able to read it, but it says here, on the Jewish Sabbath and holidays, this elevator stops automatically at each floor. And what that allows people to do is to go in the lift. They don't have to push any buttons, so they're not working. And each floor, imagine you lived at like a hundred floor flat. Uh, you, you, you kind of go out and, and stop automatically. That's, that's how the Jews, certainly some strict Jews, would celebrate the Sabbath. Let me read you some scriptures. This is Exodus chapter 20. This is when the law has been given to Moses. And this is what God says through Moses to the people, the Israelites. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Some of you need to hear that. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall shall not do any work, 
neither you nor your son or daughter nor your manservant or maidservant nor your animals nor the alien within your gates. So that's the the command that God gives to the Israelites. And later on in Exodus, he gives the reason for why he does this. So let's just look at Exodus 31 says this, linking it back to what we read earlier. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come. Why? As a lasting covenant. Just hold that thought for a moment. It will be a sign between me, it's God talking, and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Just think about that for a moment. So the reason that God gives uh, for the command of the Sabbath, ultimately, it is a sign of a lasting covenant. It's a sign for something. A sign, what does a sign do? Points you to somewhere, right? Points you in the right direction. So it's a sign pointing of a lasting covenant. And so by the Jews entering into the Sabbath, in some way, they were communicating, we're gods. We're, if you like, we're copying, we're imaging what God did right at the beginning of time. So that's the Jewish view. Let's look at the traditional Christian view of the Sabbath. There are actually some denominations, so you might not have heard of these, but Seventh-day Baptists, they sound like fun, and Seventh-day Adventists, uh, who actually uh, would observe the Sabbath literally like the Jews uh, and celebrate a day off on Saturday. Uh, Maybe you grew up in a traditional church background, um, sometimes, uh, again, they, they would maybe observe a Sabbath day, not on a Saturday, but on a Sunday. I don't know if you've ever had that experience. And it usually goes along the line of you're not allowed to play football, and you're not allowed to go and see your friends, and you must enjoy time with God. And, and some of those things are great, and we're going to talk about those things in a moment, but that's kind of how it went. Let's look at another view. This is the early church, uh, or the early church's attitude towards, I suppose, a a particular day of worship. Often you find in the New Testament, uh, this kind of phrase that keeps coming up, on the first day of the week. Now, what day is that? Shout it out. Sunday. First day of the week is Sunday. So constantly in the New Testament, you see the early church actually meeting on a Sunday. Now, when you think about this, you got to understand how crazy this is. This is like the government of the UK announcing that Sunday is no longer a day off, but Monday is. How would you feel about that? Maybe there wouldn't be the Monday blues anymore. But that's, that's, that's what it was like for the, certainly for the New Testament Jews to change their day of worship from Saturday to Sunday. Their whole entire legal system, their entire a business system was, was around the Saturday and the taking the day off, and suddenly on the Sunday was the day that they would meet and worship, and often that meant meeting early in the morning or later in the evening. Paul goes even further. Paul's teaching on the Sabbath and says, actually, the Sabbath 
no longer applies to people that follow Jesus. In fact, he goes on and he says, actually, the, the Sabbath, or sorry, Christ, or as, as we follow Jesus, we find actually Jesus fulfills the Sabbath. And we'll come and look at that in a moment. He says in Colossians 2, 16 and 17, So don't let anyone condemn you for what you eat or drink or for not celebrating certain holy days or new moon ceremonies or Sabbaths. For these rules are only shadows, say shadows, shadows of the reality yet to come. And Christ himself is that reality. Paul saying, the Sabbath, this command that was given to the Jews thousands of years before, imaging what happened at the beginning of time, was a sign, it was a covenant, it was pointing to something, it was a shadow of the reality to come. Now, I'm sure I've used this illustration before, but imagine on a sunny day, if you can, when the sun is shining and you see your shadow what does my shadow depict? It depicts often the shape, depending where I'm standing. It depicts the outline of who I am. But it probably doesn't depict much else, does it? doesn't depict my good features. He snorted there. It doesn't depict my lovely red hair, etc., etc. But a shadow, if you like, is only it's only a reflection. It's only... It's only an outline of, I was going to say the beauty, but I'm not talking about myself, of, of the reality. That's what I mean, the reality. And so the Sabbath, if you like, is a shadow of what actually was coming, which is Jesus Christ. And actually, He is the reality. I'm going to look at that in a little moment. There's never a command in the New Testament to keep the Sabbath. Uh, most of the other Ten Commandments are mentioned and talked about, but never once is this commandment number four, the Sabbath to keep, ever actually mentioned in the New Testament. And part of that is we, we often see this in the Bible where, where you see the Old Testament and the New Testament, and as they come together, as Jesus comes, certain things stop or discontinue. So they find their fulfillment in Christ. Let me give you some examples just to try and explain this. So in the Old Testament, you have things like sacrifices, you know? The Jews every day having to make sacrifices for sin that they had, that they had committed. And time after time, they have to uh, sacrifice animals. And yet we know today we don't have to do that anymore. It's discontinued. Why? Because Jesus... Jesus was what? The one sacrifice for all. So something is discontinued, but it finds its fulfillment in Christ. Does that make sense? See, let me give you another example. Um, another example is the temple. So again, in the Old Testament, you have uh, the temple really being the center of all kind of religious activity. It was the focus of everything. It's where you went. It's where you met God. It's where everything happened. It's where the sacrifices happened. So we see that constantly in the Old Testament. And yet in the New Testament, there is no temple. It's discontinued. We don't meet in a synagogue anymore, although we meet in buildings because it rains. But God's presence is not in a building. 
the temple is now us. God dwells in us, not in a building. Isn't that amazing? So it's discontinued. And the reason it's discontinued is because it finds its fulfillment in Christ. Yeah? Let me give you another one. This is one I'm particularly thankful for. Circumcision. Circumcision is no longer needing to be continued. Can I hear an amen? Again, in the Old Testament, when you were a Jew on the eighth day, you would would be circumcised. And the Bible and Paul, again, in the New Testament, talks about actually baptism has now replaced that. So again, something is discontinued and it finds its fulfillment in Christ. And so it is the same way with this teaching on the Sabbath. Let me just fire a few thoughts about what Jesus said about the Sabbath, because this is helpful. Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said this, Do you think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So Jesus commenting on the Old Testament law, in particular the Ten Commandments, he's saying, I'm not, I'm not saying do away with them. I've not come to do away with God's law. I have come to fulfill it. I've come to fulfill the Ten Commandments. And so our job is not necessarily to keep the Ten Commandments. It's to find our fulfillment in Christ. It's to be in Christ. And Jesus finds, or sorry, we find the fulfillment of the Sabbath in Christ. Let me try and explain this a little bit more. Hebrews 4, I know I'm jumping about, but I want to share a few verses with you just to give you an idea. Hebrews 4, verse 9 and 10 says this. Listen to this. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. Okay, just hold that thought. There remains a Sabbath rest. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Okay? So Hebrew, the Hebrew writer is talking about somehow God has provided a Sabbath. It's not necessarily a day, but it finds its fulfillment in Christ. And anyone who enters into it, we're imaging God. Anyone that enters into it finds rest. Okay, hold that thought for a moment. Mark 2, 27 says this. This is Jesus speaking again. The Sabbath was made for people, not people for the Sabbath. Just think about that for a moment. Jesus is saying here that the Sabbath was never meant to be a burden for men and women. It was, ne- it was never meant to be something that you would conform to by law, but actually it was a blessing. It was something that you could take delight in. Again, giving the context of, of Exodus and the law, the Israelites would have been enslaved for hundreds of years, working literally 24-7. The idea of a day off was never thought of. So for God to come in and say, actually, I want you to take one day off a week, I command it is actually a real blessing and a gift. And the Sabbath for the Israelites was meant to be a delight, a gift from God, which men could enjoy. But the Jews, as I showed you earlier with that picture, but they they turned it into this unbearable burden 
Something that you had to keep every single tiny law whereby actually the day became such a drag. And sometimes we do this with the good things that God gives us. So God often gives us good things, whether it's rest, whether it's relationships, whether it's money, whether it's sex, whether it's all these kind of things which ultimately are good things. And we often distort them, don't we? Often we uh, abuse them or misuse them or use them out of the boundaries which God gives us. So how do we find our rest in Jesus? What are we talking about when when we're talking about Jesus being the fulfillment of the Sabbath? Mark 2.28, we just read Mark 2.27, but in the next verse, Jesus says this, So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. The Son of Man, talking about himself, is Lord even of the Sabbath. So when we talk about Jesus being our rest, we're not talking about the day that you celebrate a rest day on or which day it is or when you do it or whether you get a day. What we're ultimately talking about is actually how you live every single day of your life. That's what Jesus is trying to communicate. I just want to share, I suppose, my kind of testimony in this last couple of years. This principle and this topic of Jesus being your rest literally has saved my life. I've got to try and communicate this as best I can. I'm probably what's classed as a workaholic, okay? That's what my wife would call me anyway. And about a year ago, I realized that my entire life uh, and the way that I function and the way that I do things was all about just keeping going, keeping the adrenaline going. I was probably only happy when I was doing stuff, when I was moving. Anyone else like that? And part of that is the way God's wired me, but part of it is because of sin. I'll talk about that in a moment. So what I started to realize was actually this was having an effect on me physically. And and when I tried to stop, I don't know if you've ever done this, I I couldn't. I couldn't take a day off. It it almost, almost, I got depressed and I got fidgety. Anyone else feel that way? I literally find it very difficult uh, to rest and, and have a day off from work and other things that were going on. And what I started to realize was that actually my whole existence and actually my purpose and my significance, rather than being found in Christ and what he'd done for me, was starting to become in what I was producing, in where I was successful. I was almost doing things to try and prove something. And we need to be really careful. It's so easy in a prove-it mentality world to be that person, to think that I've got to work this hard and I've got to prove this and I've got to be successful in order to prove that I am worth something. And yet Jesus, having Jesus as your rest literally means that we rest not from work, as some of you might think, but from self-salvation works trying to 
make God love us more, trying to earn something that God already has given us through Jesus Christ. And I want to, I want to try and communicate how important this is because when you understand it, when it goes from here to here, it frees you. It frees you to live as God intended. It, it stops you being a people pleaser. And actually, you become a God pleaser. It stops you trying to prove something and have a, a prove it mentality. And actually, you start to relax and rely on God and what He's done for you. And some of us are going so fast. We live in a city that, that works fast and moves fast. Some of us are trying to accomplish so much. But the question I have for you today is, at what cost? You ever thought about that? At what cost do you achieve it? At what cost are you trying to prove it? Often it's the cost of our relationships. Often it's the cost of our joy. Sometimes, most importantly, and the biggest dilemma is actually it's at the cost of our relationship with God. You ever got to a point where you, you realize you've been doing stuff for God constantly rather than enjoying Him? And actually, you, your whole attitude, rather than one of joy, becomes one of deep dryness and a sense of just a lack of joy. You ever had that experience? Maybe that's just me. But I want to encourage you. We've got to find our rest, our joy, our satisfaction our, our worth in Christ. Does that make sense? It's a great verse in Psalm 46.10. You might know it as, Be still and know that I am God. But actually, the literal transi- translation, the NASB, says this, and this is the be- uh, certainly the most literal. It says this, Cease striving. Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Cease striving. Cease striving for his acceptance. Cease striving means thinking that, or, or stopping thinking that, that by doing things, somehow God is going to accept you more or love you more. It's very easy to get into that mentality. One of the things as I was meditating, reflecting on some of the verses that we're going to look at in a moment in in Genesis that we've just read is the the kind of principle that, that God works and how we work. So you see that right at the beginning, God works for how many days? Six days. And then he rests. Yeah? Now, when did God make man and what day? It's a test. Sixth day, that's certainly what the Bible communicates. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, so God's principle is he works and then he rests. But if it's true that man was made on the sixth day, then the first day on earth, certainly for man, if it was the end of the day that he was made, was a holiday, the seventh day. Now, I don't know how true that is, but what I'm trying to communicate is God works and he rests. But we need to find our rest first in God 
and then we work. Does that make sense? And I'm not just talking about physical work, nine to five, but I'm also talking about good works. Good works, things that we do for God. They, they've got to come out of a place where we've rested in Christ. We find our rest. We find our satisfaction in Him rather than doing those things to get those things. Does that make sense? So we need to cease striving and remember that God. we need to find our rest in God, in Jesus Christ. So my question this morning is what... Just think about this for a moment. What is it that you're resting in? Where do you go to find release? Maybe that's a better description. So many people in our culture go to find peace and release probably in work, hobbies, sometimes drugs and alcohol, relationships, just trying in some way, I need a release from this pressure, this stress. And yet the Bible communicates that only can happen when we enter into Jesus' rest, the rest that he has for us, not just physically, but for our soul. Came across a verse which I know I've definitely read before because I've read the book of Romans, but it just jumped out at me uh, this morning, which kind of linked into some of the things I was thinking about. And it says this, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. I want to try and explain this for a moment. So we've been talking about work. Now, when you work at the end of the month or the end of the week, you hope that you get paid, yes, or wages. Wages. And what, what Paul is trying to communicate in this uh, verse is that if you spend all of your life doing good stuff, being a nice person, walking old grannies across the road, all of these things, if you constantly do that and you strive for that, right at the end of your life, God is going to give you a paycheck. And as you open up that paycheck, this is what it will say. Death. That's quite scary. But Paul is saying, when we work, so think about this for a moment, when you go to a job and you get your wages, it's not a gift, is it? You expect to get paid. If you go and work for a month and you don't get paid, you don't say, oh, well, you would go and say to your boss, hang on a minute, I worked for a month, where's the money that I'm owed? It's my obligation. And the Bible communicates if you work out of a place where you're trying to strive and achieve things, the wage that you deserve at the end of your life, this is crazy, it's so offensive, is death. Eternal separation from God. And yet on the flip side, it seems so controversial that if somebody that just trusts in God doesn't do anything else, now there's another verse in James that talks about faith without works is dead. So I'm not saying that you just sit there and enjoy life, but what I'm saying is somebody that trusts God, apparently, according to Paul, 
their faith is credited as righteousness. And that is not a wage, that is a gift. Rather than being something that you're obligated to, it's something that God gives you as a gift. So rather than working, constantly striving and receiving a paycheck of death, Paul is saying, actually, trust God. Trust God. Put your trust in him. And as you do that, this is the most amazing thing. He gives you a gift. It's called eternal life. He credits your account with righteousness. That means he declares you as if you've never sinned. That's amazing. That's amazing, and it seems so wrong. And yet that, my friends, is the gospel. If you're trying to live a good life so God will accept you, then you've missed the point. The only way God accepts you is through trusting him. Trusting him means receiving his gift, which comes through Jesus Christ. That trust, that faith, the Bible tells us, is then credited to you as righteousness. 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross, and, and if you like, that's what happened. Jesus took our wage, what we deserved, which is death, and he gave us his righteousness, his gift, which was eternal life. That's when we talk about what, what Jesus, that, that Jesus died for us. That's what it means. Literally, he took our imperfect record, and he gave his perfect record. And I want to encourage you, I don't know where everybody's at this morning. I recognize a lot of your faces, but it's really important if you're someone today who's never made that decision, you need to do that. You can work for the rest of your life, you can strive, and you can be a nice person, but if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ and I know this isn't PC, but apparently your life is meaningless, pointless, and at the end of it, you deserve death. And so I plead with you, I don't say those things lightly. I say them from a heart of love. I want you guys to understand that God is for you, and he's offering you a gift that's free. He's done everything he can today so that you can accept that. So please, if you're in that category... Uh, I'll give you an opportunity and please think about doing that. And just in closing, I want to share just in the last five minutes uh, a, a few things, a few principles uh, that I want to, I suppose, things that I find um, that have worked for me when it comes to this Sabbath principle. So we're, we're talking about this principle that runs through the Bible. We're saying we're not obligated to it anymore. We find our rest in Christ we understand that's a spiritual thing, but I think the principle of taking one day off in seven is a biblical principle. And I think taking a Sabbath, as in resting from work, is something I want to encourage you guys to do. And some of you don't need encouragement in that, but some of you do. And so I want to just finish these last uh, few thoughts with how, how do we Sabbath well? How do we as the people of God, rest well. And so let me just look at a few things in closing. So, first thing I want to look at uh, is this. Number one, Sabbath principle is a day your work is completed. Say completed. Genesis 2, this is uh, verse 1 and 2a, says this, 
This is what we read earlier. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done. So this is a unique day in creation where God completes the work of creation. And what it tells us is, is he rested. I mean, God doesn't need rest, but there's a sense in, in the Genesis account that it, he's kind of resting as in he's satisfied with what he's done. He's kind of chilling out and saying, whoa, it's amazing. Look at all that. He ceased working. He stopped working. And as I said earlier, for many of us, our, our I suppose our identity is intertwined with producing stuff. Production. That's the kind of uh, world that we live in. We've got to constantly produce stuff. And what Sabbath, a Sabbath principle in your life means is that one day out of the week you stop producing. Your work is complete, even if it isn't. And some of you think, do you know what? I can't afford to take a day off. Maybe in a particular season of life, you start a new business. You're a junior doctor. You don't really have a choice in that. But you're thinking, I can't take a day off. And yet I want to communicate to you, it is a day, whether you like it or not, where your work has to be completed, even if it isn't. So part of a Sabbath principle is you have one day uh, where your work is finished. It's a day that should look different to other days. You ever find that your days are just rolling into the same thing? You're doing the same thing? If you're working seven days a week, that's what happens. It's also a moment where you can look back. It, 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 in the same way that God completes His work and looks at it with satisfaction, if you never stop and look back, you'll never be satisfied with what you do. But the Sabbath principle allows you to stop and say, do you know what? I've completed, and I, I, I reflect on what I've done, and I thank God that I've been able to complete those things. And in that moment, you're saying, it's completed. Let me give you a few thoughts on this. This is a bit of a crazy thought, but what about on your day off, switching your phone off? <gasps> When's the last time you've switched your phone off? I can't even remember, for me. What about all those Facebook updates and Twitter tweets and all that? What about turning your phone off? Even just try it for a couple of hours, I bet you get fidgety and you itch. Maybe in a, a day off when your work's completed, don't answer your emails. If you have emails on your phone, that's a good reason to switch your phone off. If you're not clued up on that stuff, don't get onto it. But it's a day where your work is completed. Let me give you a second thing. It's a day of rest. Say rest. Genesis 2, 2b and 3b says this. He rested. Praise God for rest. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. He rested from all his work which God had created and made. God stops and rests. That's amazing. 
And I know we talked about it. it's not that he's weary, but he's, he's communicating a principle. He's, he's satisfyingly looking back on the creation. God doesn't need a rest, but do you know what? You do. You do. If you don't take a break, you will break. That's probably the only thing you're going to remember from this morning. If you don't take a Sabbath voluntarily, you will take a Sabbath involuntarily at some point. Your body will break and you will be off for a lot longer than a day. And so I need to communicate to you, some of you need to hear this, not all of you, but some of you. The question is not, are you going to stop? The question is, are you going to stop joyfully or painfully? And some of you need to realize that actually you've not been building this principle of taking some time off. Let me give you some thoughts. These are just some thoughts of mine of, of what you do on a day of rest. Let me give you a few things. Take some time for sheer inactivity. Have a lie-in. It's allowed. Take a moment when actually you don't have a plan. My wife loves plans. And some days I just say, Helen, can we have a day where we don't have something planned, please? If you're somebody that loves plans, take a morning off and don't plan anything. It may kill you, but it will also do you good. Have a moment where you don't plan something. Take some time for a vocational activity. By that I mean something that maybe somebody else would class as work, but you enjoy. Maybe it's painting. Maybe it's going to the gym. Maybe it's walking. Find something that you can do that requires a little bit of purpose so that you're not idle all day, but that actually you can put your focus and attention on. Here's another good thing that someone helped me, uh, someone gave me some advice which is helpful. Find out whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. If you're somebody who's an introvert, often being around people drain you. People just drain you. And you actually, when you're on your own, it's like, whew, can breathe. Other, uh, some of you, when you're on your own, it's like you're dying on the inside. And you need people to feed you, you know, like a Jack Russell or a Springer Spaniel. Find out what you are. Some of you will, do you know what? I need time away from everyone. And some of you actually will need, do you know what? I need time with friends. That's what energizes me. So find out if you're an introvert or an extrovert. There's a few others there that we don't have time for this morning. Third thing and final, just in closing, a Sabbath is a day, and this is probably most important, a day that is sanctified. Say sanctified. Genesis 2, 3 says this, the first part, then God blessed the seventh day and he sanctified it. That word is essentially the word holy. It's the first time that word is ever used in the Bible, right at the beginning of Genesis chapter 2. And it literally means to separate or, or to set apart. And it's not just separation like this, but it's kind of separation like this, separating something and elevating it, if that makes sense. So as you separate your day, 
as you make it different, as you rest, actually part of resting, part of a Sabbath principle, part of doing it right is actually taking time and, I suppose, elevating it towards God. What do I mean? Well, part of it, Sabbath is not just inactivity, but it's about enjoying God. Some of you are so tired because your, your days off are just inactivity or hobbies, but you don't actually ever think about connecting with God. And it's He that, that, that keeps our, us going. It's Him that we've got to find our rest in. And so I really want to encourage you, when you do have a day off, that you take time to connect with God. And, and each of us do that in many different ways. Maybe you do it through going for a walk. Maybe you do that for just being being still or in a coffee shop. Whatever that looks like for you, I'm not going to prescribe it to you, but find a way where you can connect with God and take time with Him. It's a crucial part of Sabbathing. It's a crucial part of chilling out. I want to, again, just encourage you in that. There's times where I have a day off. There has been times in the past. and what, I almost come to the end of the day. I don't know if you've ever felt this, and you feel tireder. You ever find that? I think, where's my day gone? And part of it, if I'm honest, is because I haven't taken time with God. But when I, when I do do that, it seems like, man, I feel so refreshed. I can go again. And so I really want to encourage you guys as we put this principle in our lives that we're not just people that are taking a restful physical day off, but actually we're taking time to connect and enjoy God. When was the last time that you enjoyed God? Maybe you think those two words didn't go together, but they do. God wants you to enjoy Him. I want to finish with one last verse just as you invite the worship team up. And it's this, Matthew chapter 11, 28 to 30. You'll know it well if you've read Matthew's gospel before. It says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. What a promise. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Amen. Let's pray.